the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. By now you've probably noticed a, a friend in the sanctuary, and you might be thinking that Pentecost is coming early, <laughs> just like the, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. Uh, well, make no mistake, it's not Pentecost yet. This is the fourth Sunday of Easter. Jesus, the Good Shepherd Sunday. Uh, we always begin this week at a disadvantage uh, because, unfortunately, the image and analogy of Christ, our shepherd, is lost on a culture like ours that doesn't know much about sheep and shepherding. Like many things in our culture that we don't know much about, we tend to romanticize it, and we, we get this picture of Jesus with this well-groomed, well-kept, clean, cuddly lamb on his shoulders. We almost have a same reaction to when we're walking down the sidewalk and we come across uh, a person selling, selling puppies. We're compulsively attracted to such an image as this. But any farmer will tell you, any person from the first century will tell you that the intricacies of any type of animal husbandry it's dirty, it's hard work, and inevitably involves blood and death. No less in a religious culture that is dependent upon animal sacrifices. Not quite the cute and cuddly picture that often comes to mind. So just to be clear, cute and cuddly lambs are not what is going on in John chapter 10. Sheep and shepherding, of course, was, was very commonplace in Jesus' day and in this region, and they would have certainly known better, the original audience. But what's interesting about this analogy that Jesus uses doesn't really have so much to do with that lone shepherd on the hillside with his sheep. Instead, we often see in the ancient Near East that this was a common way for religions in that day and region to describe the human and divine relationship. It's actually not a new concept that Jesus is offering to us here in John chapter 10. In many religions, the divine is often cast as the shepherd, and the people under that God or gods are described as the sheep. We see this even in the beloved Psalm 23, where God is referred to as my shepherd. We see this in other religions of this day, too. And often in these religious cultures, the leader of that people, the king of that people, or other leaders, the governors, often act as a representative of their deity. And so we see that the leaders often take on a shepherding role or characteristic, at least in title as well. So what we need to be mindful of when we read John chapter 10, and we think of Jesus as, the, as our good shepherd, isn't so much cute and cuddly lambs, but actually a kingly and divine role that Jesus is pulling from. So the question for us today that we should be asking of this text, or at least one of the questions, is, is why would Jesus use this already well-known analogy that is even known and used in the Judaism of his day? What is Jesus gaining by adopting this title for himself? Kings have come and gone as they always will who have used this title. So how is this 
self-professed shepherd going to be any different? Well, lucky for us, Jesus doesn't keep us hanging. He goes straight to the answer. We see immediately that Jesus contrasts himself with the hired hand. The hired hand sometimes abandons the sheep because, let's face it, he's more committed to his own well-being than the well-being of his sheep. It's not that the hired hand is necessarily evil or hates the sheep. A job like a shepherd is usually a means towards an end, and the shepherd works to receive his pay. But if the job is going to come at the cost of his own life, well, no doubt he's going to abandon his post and run away. If the risk is too high, it's not worth the pay. This really shouldn't come at any surprise to us even today. The hired hand simply does not own the sheep, and his care for the sheep isn't great enough to motivate his own loss. But Jesus, Jesus says he's a different kind of shepherd. If we had Old Testament prophecy in our mind that Jesus', Jesus audience, his original audience, no doubt would have had, we would hear echoes of the late prophets, especially in Ezekiel, when God tells the prophet to speak against the shepherds of Israel. Now remember that kingly role that this title shepherd assumes. Well, if we were to flip back to Ezekiel chapter 34, we would find God accuses the shepherds of Israel, that is, that is the leaders of his people, of starving the sheep and feeding themselves. In fact, God says that not only have they feasted at the expense of their sheep, but they've actually slaughtered the sheep for the food of their feast, the same sheep that they were supposed to feed and protect. God has Ezekiel write to the, to the, the leaders of Israel, you have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick. You have not bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strayed. You have not sought the lost. And so they became food for wild animals. Sounds a whole lot like the context Jesus is talking about with the hired hand, doesn't it? These are very, very strong accusations. So what does God say that he's going to do in response to his, his leaders leading his people astray. What does God say that he will do in Ezekiel chapter 34? When verse 11 he says, I myself, I will search for my sheep. I will seek those that have not been scattered, those that have been scattered. I myself will shepherd my sheep. No longer will my sheep be plundered. No longer will the animals devour them. They shall live in safety. And no one shall make them afraid. We find images like this all throughout the prophets. Again, here from Ezekiel, but also in Zechariah and Micah. And here are the Jews who have read these scriptures from their youth every day. Here are the Jews who have meditated upon them for countless hours and prayed for their fulfillment day in and day out. And here is Jesus standing in their midst, and he says to them, I am the good shepherd. I don't run when the wolf comes like countless leaders have in your past. I'm not like them. Here is God 
acting on these prophecies given centuries ago. Here is God coming to gather his sheep which have been scattered. Here is God coming to be a different kind of shepherd. And Jesus adds, in fact, here's precisely how I'm not like these other shepherds of you. When the wolf comes, I will lay down my life for you, my sheep, willingly. In most shepherding contexts in the first century, the death of a shepherd would be fairly rare. And no doubt it would never have been the, the intention of that shepherd to, in, to intentionally die for those sheep. Add on the kingly significance to this title, and we're really thrown for a loop. What king dies for his people? It's always the other way around, isn't it? Here lately, we have become very acquainted with the death of, of martyrs in our day and in our faith, sadly. But, but Jesus' sacrifice, his willing offering of his life, is far more admirable than a death of a martyr. For in this death, we see the beauty of God himself. Since God is love, and love, as John says in our second lesson from 1 John, love is the laying down of life for others. And it's precisely because Jesus is God, it's precisely that, that it is his identity, that he poured himself out and laid down his life for those he loves. God is simply love, we read in 1 John 4, verse 8. And love gives and suffers loss. That's what love does, according to 1 John. And as part of his very character, Jesus' love is not contingent on the loveliness or worth of the objects of his love. He simply loves. He simply gives. It's shocking to think of a shepherd that gives his life for his sheep or to think of a God that comes and dwells with us in order to die for us. But this is who our God is. This is simply what our God does. He loves. And that is why he is the good shepherd. And you, friends, you are his sheep. You are the objects of his love. Do you know that? He does not love you based upon your loveliness or your own self-worth. You don't earn this kind of love, and it can never be taken away from you. Again, that's why he's the good shepherd. That's how he's different. Isn't this liberating, friends? Isn't that unfathomable to think that you can never fall from the embrace of our God? We spend our entire lives looking for acceptance, looking for love, and here it is, unconditionally given to us. By Jesus, right here, all along. And we're asked to, in turn, to love like he loves. Now, it's important for us at this moment to push pause just, just for a moment to understand something very important about what we're just talking about here, about this unconditional love. You see, it's, it's, it's a really hard balance to strike, and it's a tightrope, really, to walk. And sadly, we see the church often falling off one side, of that tightrope and secular culture falling off the other side. Sadly, the church has fallen off the tightrope of unconditional love when it refuses to love and, ex and accept those who struggle 
with a particular type of sin. It's as if a person must reform their life and behave in a certain way in order to be loved and accepted. What happened about unconditional love being unconditional? But on the other side of that tightrope, we see secular culture falling off because we see them celebrating the behavior or attitude that itself is, is essentially sinful. Unconditional love does not mean unconditional approval. Unconditional love does not mean either of these. Unconditional love is not, on the one hand, turning a blind eye to that sin or evil, but neither is it refusing to love those who are sinful and evil. In fact, it's usually those people, those who are sinful and evil, that need the love the most. And if we're honest with ourselves, friends, very often we fall in that same category, don't we? As one pastor says, unconditional love says that, yes, I know what you did. It was wrong. And there may and most likely will be consequences for that. But my love for you will never fail. Unconditional love says that I will be with you through thick and thin. Isn't that what we see of Jesus in the Gospels? With his disciples who just simply could not understand what he was about. Isn't that what we see of Jesus on the cross? Isn't that what we see with Jesus with the world? This is the love that we have from Jesus. And this is how he asks us to love the world in return. As the good shepherd, Jesus demonstrates this unconditional love by risking everything for a sheep. But Jesus does not merely risk his life. You see, that, that still doesn't get to the point, does it? He consciously gives it away for the sake of his sheep. You see, it's not as if God the Father and God the Son were up in heaven talking about the possibility of the incarnation. And Jesus, God the Son, says, yeah, sure, I'll go down there. I'll be incarnated, even though there's, there's a risk that they might kill me. Yeah, it's a risk, but I'll take it. No, that misses the point. He said, I will be incarnated in order to be killed. This wasn't plan B for our redemption, friends. The shadow of the cross is cast even on the first pages of the Gospels. It was always the plan. Nothing has changed. It was always Jesus' intention. Do you see the difference, friends? He says, I will take the hit. I will pay their price, which they have wronged me. That's not something that we see ever in our day-to-day -day world, is it? But isn't this what the world needs? We look to the Middle East or Northern Africa or even in our neighborhoods, and we see retaliation for retaliation. We see killing for killing. But here is Jesus who not only doesn't kill or retaliate, but he gives new life to men and women after taking death from their hands. Do you want to know how to reverse the endless cycle that our world is in, friends? Look to Jesus and be saved and live out that real salvation in our real world today. You don't have to curse when cursed. You don't have to strike when struck. You don't have to sue in endless litigation. You don't have to demand your share. You don't have to retaliate. You don't have to fall into the endless cycle of quid pro quo, this for that. 
In fact, friends, after Jesus' example, the way of life is to take the sacrifice. We see in the Gospels that it's to suffer the loss gladly. It's to love unconditionally. Friends, Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd precisely by carrying the cross, not by carrying an assault rifle or explosives tied to a vest or a book on litigation. He carries a cross. When will the world realize that this is the way of life, that this is the way out of a perpetual cycle of hatred and violence? I suppose they will realize it when they see the church doing the same, when they see his church living as he lived, loving as he loved. You always, we always have a church willingly, we always have a choice willingly to respond to any wrong or any attack. Jesus willingly gave his life for the salvation of the world. We can willingly choose not to retaliate, and that cycle of hatred and violence will be broken. But not only that, we can respond to being wronged with love. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the cycle of hatred and violence, might just be healed as Jesus' love shines through us. Friends, it begins small. It begins, in fact, in your very families, even though that's usually the hardest place for it. But it begins small. It begins with your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your children and, and your parents. Extend the love and acceptance that you know from the Good Shepherd to them. Suffer the loss gladly if you have to. Then move on to your neighbors. Love and suffer the loss of time to actually have a conversation with them. Suffer your reputation by actually talking about your faith with them and inviting them to church. When they wrong you, you don't have to retaliate. But instead, you can bless them. This is a costly love, friends. It's hard to hear. It's not how our world operates, I know. But we are loved with this kind of love. We know what it costs our good shepherd. But friends, here's the catch. We know what it leads to. It leads to redemption. And that's what our world needs. Jesus is our good shepherd. He shows us this love. that achieves our salvation. And following after his example, following after the example of the good shepherd, why don't you be the good spouse? Why don't you be the good neighbor? Why don't we be the good friend? Suffer the loss gladly, friends, and love the world. Amen.